Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first this week to Spartan Grown. Welcome back. Thanks, Jack. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, one word, all, no spaces. And um, if you can't, if you don't do Instagram, you can shoot the best way to get a hold of me is through email at SpartanGrown at gmail.com. And I can help you with all your organic or synthetic cannabis gardening questions. Happy to have you back. And uh, we got We Nerd DWC first in the chat this week. I just clicked on over to the live chat myself, reminding anybody if they want to see all the messages, go on over there. Uh, if not, you can hang out in the, uh, you know, whatever top chat. I think it might be all messages versus some messages now. But next up, we've got Dr. MJ. Hey, guys, I'm Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com. I want to make sure everybody knows about the upcoming spring autoflower challenge that we're doing over at Cocoa for Cannabis. We're doing size matters and we're going to try to grow the biggest or the smallest autoflowers. So that should be a lot of fun. Hope you guys can join us for that. And uh, I do the Ask Dr. Coco show every Monday night for my Patreon subscribers. So looking forward to the show tonight. Although I'm behind, I didn't do my homework this week. So I feel guilty about that. It's all right. I think sometimes uh, looking at it fresh can help us all go through it. And uh, like many of the people in the chat who haven't probably looked at some of these papers, it's nice to be able to go through them and maybe tear them apart or, uh, you know, agree with the science of it's being done well. So I'm looking forward to it because I've only kind of skimmed the surface, admittedly myself, but I know Matthew's got some notes. And speaking of, uh, Matthew Gates. Yeah, no, I look forward to it. Uh, I like when we do these analytical, um, you know, paper readings that we do. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff, of course. And yeah, if you don't know, my name is Matthew Gates. I'm an IPM specialist. So if you're interested in more information about that, you can check me out on my YouTube channel. I'm actually going to drop a ultimate recipe my video probably the best reference for recipe mites ever i'm going to say it online because there's not a lot of people talking about it so you can check that out over there in a couple of weeks looking forward to that definitely a tough one to fight and good to know the best info and uh, most thorough stuff about that next up we've got the american one hello jack panel and everyone in chat i am the american one on youtube and the american one underscore with underscore keens on the ig it's always good to be here to uh see everyone and talk about cannabis so i'm glad to be here glad to have you here as well and uh i'm hoping that my internet is going to be stable although i'm a little bit concerned that i might be dropping in and out because i'm looking at my tv which has like a chromecast plugged into it and the chromecast is resetting so i'm like is that just the Chromecast or is that my internet? And uh, let's see how long it hangs on for. But with that all said, I know that we have two articles that we were kind of looking at in our uh, little chat discussion. And Matthew, I think, made some notes on uh, maybe one or both of those articles. So um, I guess I'll let you pick because you put some time and effort into it, which one you would like to uh, start with, because they're kind of somewhat seemingly related, at least as far as I, I wrote microbes in the title and scientific papers. But uh, as far as more information, I think you'd be the one to kind of lead, lead us off on this. Well, thanks, Jack. I think that we should do the one Tao suggested last time or when, we, when he was when we were suggesting these, which is cannabis seedlings inherent uh, inherit seed borne bioactive and antifungal endophytic bacilli. Um, I actually read this earlier in the past, so um, I'm somewhat familiar with the topic and uh, I can share my screen. That it's a little bit more engaging for people. I know uh, I've heard people anecdotally report in the past about stuff like this, so it's always interesting to see what the research has to say about it. Yeah, as you can see here, my tabs, I'm uh, 
doing a lot of rest of my reading lately. So a lot of cool stuff to come. Um, but yeah, here it is. Here's the paper. I highlighted a few parts of the paper just so people know what's going on. I think these are just kind of the fun things. We'll go over this diagram here. Basically, this paper in a nutshell found a bunch of endophytes. Endophytes are microbes that are inside of a plant. And then you have a term like epiphyte for microbes that are on the surface of the plant. Um, so that's the difference there. And some of these endophytes are passed from their parents to their offspring. And I, people who have watched us know this and have heard us talk about it all the time. But Tao suggested a really great paper. I'm not going to read this whole abstract, but uh, this highlighted part says that um, both hemp and marijuana, so they make a distinction here, seedlings inherited a closely related group of bioactive endophytic bacilli. Actually, I'm going to increase this to 200%. And Matthew, is bacilli just a plural for like all the bacillus? Yeah, it's a little bit ambiguous here with the way they've italicized it, but that's my interpretation. So like bacillus and I guess bacillus adjacent, unless somebody else has an understanding different than me. That's kind of what I think they mean. That's how I could tell. Or at least that's yeah, from what I've read. It's just the plural here. form. It doesn't necessarily mean, I don't think, all of Like them. a genus. Yeah. Yeah, but they italicized it. Yeah, I just feel like that's not, that's not in keeping they with They italicized the... it because it's Latin. Yeah, but... But it's not a genus, so that's I guess that's the confusion that I'm having. I understand. Bacillus isn't is in a, in a genus. Bacillus is. Cannabis is also I italicized. Mean, you would, you would just bacillus. say you would just say bacillus, though. Yeah, I don't. I don't. You know what I'm saying? You're referring to several different sort of groups of them. Well, um, we don't do it here with Alternaria. We don't do it here with Penicillium. We don't do it here with Cladosporium or Fusarium or Rhizopus. We don't say Rhizopi. We don't see Fusarii. Right. Yeah, but in that first thing, it's talking about a, a group of bioactive endophytic bacilli. Um, so referring to one group of the bacilli of the bacillus genus, actually non-inclusive of the rest of the genus. Um, I, yeah, okay. It's a fairly minor. This is a linguistic point more than anything else. Let's get to the, the rest of it, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it if it aligns with the international code of uh, zoological taxonomy or whatever. <laughs> sure. But here, here we go. All cannabis accessions possess seed-inherited Panabacillus mobilis, and that's a very interesting one. We'll talk about that. With the capacity to solubilize mineral phosphate. They make some uh, inferences that there might be some selection pressure in cannabis that made this a particularly um, common one across the accessions. Additionally, seeds were found to carry genera of fungal isolates known to be cannabis pathogens and post-harvest molds. Like I said earlier, Altenaria, Penicillium, Phytosporium, uh, Catomium. Sorry, I have a little note here that's come up. Yeah, Catomium. Aspergillus, Rhizopus, and Fusarium, and many people will recognize several of these genera as pathogens. 13 seed-borne endophytes showed antibiotic activity against Alternaria, Aspergillus, Penicillium, and Fusarium. The study suggests both fungal pathogens and bacterial endophytes that antagonize them are vectored across generations in cannabis as they compete over this shared niche. That niche, the plant body itself, we are all an ecology. 
So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to just monologue. So should we stop there and have some discussion or what? I think it is interesting to kind of note um, we have in the past on this show talked about things like hoplite and viroid and how um, 10% or maybe even more were passed through seed. And that's, uh, you know, not a beneficial, but um, it has shown and, and you've often discussed in the past that this is possible. So it's just, uh, I'll throw my hat in there and say it's interesting to finally see it be put to research and and uh, discuss the exact specifics of which ones are being passed and how it can, even though there might be some like uh, pathogens in there, the beneficials are providing some sort of uh, resistance, maybe it seems like. I think the same is also true for people, right? In, in, in a lot of ways, you know. Um, you know, you go first, Spartan. Well, I had a question just trying to understand this. Um, so everything that they found was an endophyte. So to me, that tells me that's something that would stick around, even if you did any kind of a seed wash or anything, because it would be contained within the embryo of the seed. Is that what they're getting at? Yeah. Or yeah, would this right. be something? Okay. So it's, they're not talking about bacteria or anything that is found on the outside of the seed shell itself that then infects yeah. well, the, the root. Well, they actually, that's they do, they do. Uh, well, so yeah, that's generally what they're talking about with endophytes, but they actually do, um, they do one where they don't wash it and they do find some, some additional stuff. So that, that is a uh, perspicacious of you, Spartan. Do go over that. Okay. Okay. Cool. That's a good point as well, Spartan, because I have washed seeds in the past and despite being washing on the exterior and trying my best to like, quote unquote, sterilize and then hit it with a beneficial, a small percentage of them still had a pathogen take within their germination process. So it's a, it could have just been literally within the inside of the seed and there wasn't much I could have done. It was going to sprout with that almost regardless, it seems. Yeah, definitely. Um, they uh, so that I've highlighted these two parts here that basically that uh, micro microorganisms that have effectively colonized plant tissues have the potential to exert that like you're saying, Jack, this barrier effect against other microorganisms. Yeah, I think their colonization. Yeah, that's often called the founder effect. That I mean, it exists throughout biology that the first organisms to colonize a place sort of change the place in such a way that it makes their own colonization more plausible and sort of more difficult to other, you know, bacteria, microorganisms, animals, plants, whatever it is. That's a, a sort of common thing that we see. The first to get there sort of set up shop and, and make it their own. Absolutely. And yeah, like you say, you know, and, and very much like what I was saying earlier, this there we are an ecology, this plant is an ecological niche yeah. and so it's absolutely the right terminology to use, definitely. Um, yeah, I think we also we also get some. Uh, if I'm if I'm bold enough to say, I think we also get some. Uh, what's it called? Uh, niche construction. So that's when an organism modifies its environment that makes it more like like Dr. Coco is saying here, more habitable. So like uh, an ant creating an ant nest, for example, or a beaver making a dam, and then those can have radiating and do have radiating effects on other organisms right and, and it's turtles all the way down at that point yeah and, and this happens in like a broader ecology scale like the first large plants to reach an island will have a tremendous effect on the the flora and fauna that exist on that island forever 
um, because those sort of first large plants, say trees, create the, the climates and the ecologies for all the other organisms that sort of depend on them. And they become these sort of keystone species that set up sort of the, the whole ecosystem for them. Um, other trees will have a much harder time sort of colonizing those islands after that's already taken place. Um, even after you cut down all the original trees, um, those same that same species will be more easily able to recolonize that area because the whole sort of ecosystem has been tailored to suit its needs. Um, and it's interesting to think about that in all these inheritable things. Like, do you have the same suit of stuff from your parents because of vertical transmission um, directly, or is it because sort of these other sort of things, say you inherit some of the, the microbes through vertical transmission, um, and then they create that effect on the, the species that allows other things to colonize that become very similar to, to what the parents were. That I think it's some, some nature and some nurture, you know, they are brought up in that region, then like mm -hmm. in the plant or human individual, uh, they're eating like a lot of the same foods and they're uh, like pine is the example that came to my head. It doesn't seem to be hospitable to lots of other trees. It changes the pH of the soil. And it does lots of other things to sort of dominate right. and ensure that it's going to continue to survive. And then other plants and animals that coexist well with pine will then come in, whether it's like a blueberry bush or something that can accept the, uh, you know, more harsh pH or uh, other things like that. But that's a great point. And, uh, it's interesting that it starts as early as we're seeing now with like the seed, you know, and within the seed there on a micro scale, the microbes are fighting to get that sort of founder effect. So uh, yeah. very fascinating. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. My favorite example of this, for those who haven't said, and I'll, and I'll just be quick, is that there's a there's a salt grass that gets a fungus endophyte, and that fungus endophyte has a virus in it. And if the fungus doesn't have that virus, which is called the curvularia something or other thermotolerance virus, it might have a number attached to it. Uh, that salt grass can't. It, it cannot exist in this really inhospitably high temperature uh, soil, which is really fascinating to me. So like, yeah, like definitely, you know, yeah. um, a turtle on a log on a bump and the, you know, however that song goes <laughs> at the bottom of the ocean. It's all connected. So this section here, this says that, um, uh, yeah, like we were talking about earlier, microbial inheritance via seed to seed Seed to seedling vertical transmission occurs through microbial colonization. Um, there was a section here. Oh yeah, they just they hypothesize here that cannabis seeds vector opportunistic fungal pathogens as well as bacterial symbionts to protect them against biotic stresses. So we kind of already went over that. I'm curious, honest. Matthew. So they're saying that that there are some endophytes that basically go in and colonize the seed and then when the seed germinates they're already there to to be you know hosted by the new seedling that goes on to become a plant correct uh yeah so like it's, it's somewhere it's in their uh tissue right right so i wonder what the shelf life of that is and if it's exactly the same as the seed if the endophyte is feeding off of something within the seed during that dormant period it, you know I'd be interested to see some of that, if that makes sense. Um, I would guess it would drop over time, like a five-year-old seed yeah, has less activity than a one-year-old yeah, or exactly. one-month-old. Exactly. I think that's a really, 
I think it's a really interesting follow-up. I I agree with that. And I suspect Jack is correct there. Just as a second. Is it consuming part of the the sort of carbohydrate load for the, you know, the would-be seedling that's coming up? Is it is it feeding off of something or how deeply does that endophyte also go into dormancy? Yeah, right. Because is, is it like some sort of like insistment that's like basically torpor and doesn't really do much metabolism? Or is it like, uh, you know, what is for all intents and purposes, a very small like mycelial mass? And is it intercellular, intracellular? I don't know. I think some I think most are probably not intra, but, you know, endophytes can be crazy. Well, I also think about there for a long time, uh, and this I think has pretty much been disproven, but um, people will still stand by it. People used to put seeds in their mouth, and I think they thought it was because the they believed the plant would sense what they were like lacking in nutrition and then grow more of that or something like that. But what I'm thinking now, reading into stuff like this, is it was probably more so when they put the seed into their mouth, they had a certain microbial profile within their saliva that was maybe activating or, or causing something on the outside of the seed that when it does go to germinate becomes part of that consortium of microbes and it could be beneficial and it might actually be <laughs> you know more problematic than uh, could be expected because they're completely different sort of uh, profiles of microbes from what I understand what we use to break down food in our mouth versus uh, what is most beneficial to germinate a seed I think are Maybe there's some crossover there, but I think that Venn diagram is like a narrow scope in the middle, but I would need to look more into it because I know that is something that people did for a long time. And I want to know more about that side of things now because uh, I heard it advocated for a long time, but never saw any real um, evidence to substantiate why or how it would benefit. You know, I think that you're right that it's, I think there is maybe a very small, small overlap, but I think it's not zero. I think you're right, though, it's a very narrow Venn diagram. I'm not sure how useful it is personally, but um, I do think that, like, I feel like there's something there, though. I feel like it's on the track for some something interesting, uh, but I'm not sure. I don't have a fully formed thought about that. Somebody said, what about people who roll their seeds in myco or maybe like any other I've seen well, yeah, uh, soaking them yeah. in beneficial microbes and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think that uh, should you know, should radically change. I, I'm very excited about the the possibility for really uh, fine-tuned, um, you know, my, microbial consortia that can then be just added to a, like a seed as like a coating and then have a, um, just a, a really sophisticated uh, barrier and also sort of um, uh trying to use a, a good word, but like a, a booster, essentially, something that really helps on multi-tier front. Yeah. Like an anti-pathogen, but also either releasing more nutrients to the plant or whatever's available or just making it more protected and, uh, yeah, and actually, active. Perhaps even actually, for specific effects too, you know, like maybe it's a, it's a booster for growth, uh, like just vegetative growth or maybe something that's, this might just sound like marketing. I'd really want it to be super like uh uh, verified, but like I think yeah. a small so, bit of GA three, like gibberellic acid, if you dialed it into the right amount or something similar, or something some that of makes a plant, plant hormone. hormone that you know, so it could do it itself with just the nutrients you already have. Yeah, uh, one of the yeah. box that we were talking about on that, in the in that paper, they talk about making the seed coating with bacillus in particular somewhere. 
Oh, I think you might be right there. Yeah. I don't remember exactly where. Maybe I've highlighted it. Well, and this is a practice that's kind of standard in agriculture, right? They use like sulfurs or osmocote and different types of, or I don't know, osmocote. There's uh, some sort of fertilizer that is put yeah, on seed to seeds. Is already a thing, yeah. So yeah, seeds coated in fertilizer is a very common thing in in sort of agronomy writ large. A lot of that, like grass seed in particular, is all that. But that's a good point, actually. Um, so yeah, so here just as a start with the results, I like it when they do that. Um, so they said they yeah, had total sure. total of a uh, 136 bacterial isolates that were obtained, um, and they use 16S sequencing, which I'm only familiar enough to know that uh, when I look at uh, bacterial phylogeny um, papers, they often use this. So this is part of the. I think this is different in different bacteria. Um, so although the seeds came from four different locations and growing conditions in Canada. They observed an unexpected conservation of some of the culturable seed-borne seedling endophytes. And they have table one to show that here. This is table one. Yeah, this is a nice, oh, that's figure one. I'm sorry. I might have passed it, whatever. But um, anyways, getting to the important parts. 15, uh, 15 cannabis accessions appear to be dominated by endospore-forming bacteria. So maybe that, that, that uh, explains what we were saying here. Oh, but they didn't italicize bacilli here. Okay, yeah, that's that's true. They didn't italicize that. But here they're talking about a taxonomic class, but so perhaps it was that they were doing the Latinate thing. Um, notably, pain bacillus mobilis isolates were cultured from endospores of 100% of accessions, despite the different conditions in which their mother plants were grown. And uh, what else did, oh yeah, Bacillus subtilis was found in a majority, eight out of 15 of the accessions and was present in both hemp and marijuana. So cool, it's actually, this isn't what they were talking about, but honestly, it's a really cool uh, diagram. So I think it would make for, here we go. Perfect. You guys can see it good? I can, yes. So this is where all the different seeds come from. And I like how they like pictured all the different ones and. Shows us like the size and the the color. I don't. This one looks a little suspect here, though. I have to say. <laughs> I was gonna say some of those don't look the greatest, man. I'll say no. that if you if you have a thousand seeds that you made yourself, Which is why I'm glad they said it. You could have a representation <laughs> of every single one of those from like the same, uh, like yeah. my velvet punch. I've got a bunch, and I could pull out one. I hey, eat the white hey. ones, but those um, white ones I don't know that showing us pictures of the seeds. I, these are the kinds of things they're they're fun visuals but i don't think there's a lot of scientific value in showing us a picture of the seed well it is if we think that they're using bad seeds yeah i mean i, I suppose that that's true <laughs> no but you're you're right it, it definitely makes for a nice visual to look at but yeah. um yeah, yeah you can I'm wipe sure off tiger stripes one. and white seeds will also grow like tal had mentioned i've seen people i've germinated myself a 15 pack and 14 out of 15 germed and they all grew into perfectly healthy plants so a white seed is uh often it might not look as appealing and some stuff is genetically more a uh, higher number of white seeds so i know some breeders that have put out stuff and they're like hey you know five out of ten of these might be white seeds but try and pop them they'll grow it's just how that seed ended up or maybe they're processing them and uh you know maybe removing some of that article Nope. Okay. I was just wondering if like maybe the authors were like uh, growers and maybe there was some, uh, some marketing going on in this research report. 
anyways um you know because maybe somebody sees the tiger stripes and goes oh i like how that seed looks maybe i'll buy some god's pink or, or it wouldn't be the first time we had like an outdoor wouldn't grower be, sponsoring you know uh outdoor is better than indoor paper type thing uh on one of our past yeah shows, so. yeah that's right I, I really think this is just somebody trying to dress up their report i mean I've been involved in like judging academic posters at academic conferences. And it's the kind of thing that you do. You kind of make something pretty to to look at that's related to what you're doing or illustrating some real point, but it's not really sort of moving the the needle forward in terms of the the science much. I feel that, like they could have use they yeah. put a lot of negative space here if I'm gonna be judging them on that. Uh they could have made it more compact and made my viewing easier. Anywho. Um, do you know what notobiotic means, Dr. Coco? Because I have forgotten. And I didn't look it up before. I knew I was going to forget something. <laughs> no, germinated in notobiotic. Um, Quick chat. Tell us yeah, what that means. We can fig- I mean, I can find that too. I have a Google. Let's crowdsource it. I'll look it up um, right now. We all got the Google machine. Relating to or denoting notobiotics for rearing or culturing organisms in which all microorganisms are either known or excluded. Okay. So, okay. So in other words, yeah. So like what they're doing here, that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah. So they have a diagram here talking about seed endophyte, epiphytes and endophytes. So like Spartan referred to earlier, we have seed surface and seed in the endosphere. Uh, being vectored, and then, yeah, seed hairy cannabis endophytes from seed endosphere and seed surface. So that diagram is showing microbes getting in and around the um, root and perhaps even the beginning of the stalk here. So that's cool. And then this was uh, this was a little, this was table one, right? So here's the hemp cultivars and the marijuana cultivars, and some of them are indoor. And, one, and then we have flax. Okay, so we had the flax seed here. This was a control. I just want to say a quick note because earlier I said, why is cannabis italicized? And Doc was mentioning that it was all of the Latin. You mean bacilli? And, well, but we were talking about all the italicized words that were in Latin. Oh, yeah. And yeah. cannabis is the Latin term for marijuana because they're referring to it as marijuana. And if you type like Latin for marijuana, it pulls up cannabis sativa. So that's uh, probably why. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's like taxon- cannabis is Latin. the genus. Yeah. So when you're referring to it in a scientific sense, instead of sort of as a casual term, which you can kind of correctly do both with some of those terms, I think cannabis is an example of it. But yeah, that is the genus term too for cannabis sativa. And sometimes, um, sometimes like the the name that people use normally is like the gen- genus name, right? Like uh, yeah. we're getting one at the moment, but. Um, is Zinnia one of them? I don't think so. I'm forgetting. Anywho, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes more things we're that are in here? the same genus look nothing like each other or behave nothing like each other, too. That's true, um, too. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, okay. so here we have... Oh, what's up? That Panabillus mul- uh, mobilis is in everything. Yes, every single one. Except for the field flax, huh? Which is the control. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so- that's pretty wild. I'm just looking at that. Thought, flax is a different, an entirely different. It's plant, not it's a control. Yeah. yeah. So that would make sense that because it's not in the cannabis family or cannabaceae even. Right. I don't think flax is in cannabaceae. I could be wrong. Um, no. But it would 
that must be like some sort of, I don't know, important uh, microbe to be within a seed for it to be showing up in all of these cultivars. That's pretty. Be honest, I'm too fastidious, I think, to say that, like, with confidence, this was a big enough sample size or whatever. I agree. Um, did they say but anything about how I think they it's cool. sample, Matthew? Yes, they did. And I think I also highlighted, because I knew that we would ask that question. That was the other thing I thought about looking at that map. I'm like, okay, so they got, like, one from over there and then, like, a whole bunch from somebody else. And it was, it looked pretty ad hoc. I always yeah. love going into the methods, because oftentimes you can start to see how big and well uh, orchestrated the research could be yeah yeah and how much uh how much uh yeah i think they put the methods at the end it's, this paper was platform i feel like uh i definitely read i feel like i read something related to that but i'm not sure if i highlighted it because i wanted to be i wanted to like highlight things that people might find interesting over informative that's because uh in any event, yeah, I don't need much. to knock you off. Maybe we'll come to that if you. Oh no, no, oh no, no, no. I, uh, I'm curious now that you say that because I know I did. Anyways, yeah, this part here, let's say uh, phylogenetic analysis of the uh, 136 seedborne cannabis bacterial endophytes demonstrated that a large number of the cultural bacteria, and they make a good point here, cultural bacteria attacks. So, right, there might be a whole bunch of stuff that's not getting looked at. So that's a bias that we should consider. Right there. They're culturing these in a particular medium. So some stuff uh, like, is non-culturable for the layman out there. There's things that might right. be in Most that things, will never show up in the lab. Oh, okay, so that, that is uh, important to... Some know. say. Hearsay. Yeah, they're trying to grow something, basically, and then they're counting the stuff that grows. And if it just doesn't grow, then they don't count it. It doesn't mean it wasn't there. They might have killed it instead of growing it. Well, exactly. like in a, in a tissue culture type, germination like they're doing in these little petri type dishes yeah, in a it's petri different dish, than exactly. like a uh you know pot of peat or uh some soil or uh, whatever it's planted into i think plays some role into it said they did five seed seeds of each and then they went to great lengths to clean off the stuff to get to the end of it yeah they did they kind of did both um yeah. i think the way that I was reading it, and this might not have been what happened, but like I think they did it with this with the seed wash first, and then they tried without. But uh, not that that matters, I suppose. Um, it yeah, matters so they mainly that, so that they can they know what they're measuring. I think. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I I get that. Yeah, yeah. just that. Um, I don't know. I think it's like again, kind of like what you were saying with the picture. Like there was a, they wrote it story like, like with a narrative kind right. of voice a little bit a little bit you can kind of kind of uh, uh feel it uh but they mentioned that the the so the genera so bacillus was in 28.26 percent pain of bacillus was in 67.39 percent made up the majority of isolates they say bacillus endophytes were isolated from 80 percent of cannabis genotypes well endophytes belonging to the genus pain of bacillus were isolated from all 15 accessions that the in the absence of environmental microorganisms, the cannabis genotypes in the study appeared to inherit a group of closely related endophytes from parental seeds. So they go with the extra, you know, um, line at the dot and say that, as you can kind of see here, yeah, you see a lot of bacillus, right? Mm -hmm. I think painted bacillus is also pretty close together um, in that greater clade. 
So cool. They did mention here, this was an interesting point, um, that one of their varieties, X59 or X59, they had like uh, two different samples. So the first generation, which they delineate here as X59 Gen 1, was produced by field-grown plants in what's that pronounced? Vegraville, Alberta. Some of these seeds, well, somebody know? Okay, anyways, uh, some of the seeds were subsequently sown in soilless commercial potting mix and grown to maturity indoors in uh, Kalauna, <laughs> British Columbia. And the seeds produced by these plants were labeled X59 Gen 2. And what they found was that analysis of the endophyte 16S amplicons showed that the strains of Bacillus megatarium and pain of Bacillus mobilis, like we said earlier, isolated from the seedling endospheres across these generations were identical despite growing in vastly different environments. So I guess that's because, so I guess they're really sure that it's not from a, a seed coat thing. I mean, I don't, uh, now that I've read it out loud, I'm actually less impressed with the statement. It was better in my head. <laughs> <laughs> That happens to me a lot. I think it's like, oh, it's all impressive. And I read it. Exactly. Well, Wait, well no, like... they're saying it came from the seed. You know, it was in the seed, not the soil, right? Well, oh, it yeah, wasn't, but it was I mean, coated but they kind it. of already said that. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But but to me, I read this and then it was like, oh, like all the other things that were endophytes. So it's actually, you know what I mean? But you're right. Absolutely. Like right, it, right. It definitely, they definitely showed it. I guess they had the data. I guess it added another paragraph, right? Published I guess paragraph. it's a good sign that if you get something from somebody who's got like a healthy, you know, whatever plant that produces a good endophytes inside the seeds, then you can be more confident that you don't have to worry as much about uh, washing and going through the stuff. Uh, I'll still probably do a slight H2O2 rinse and microbe or whatever, but uh, I don't know. Old habits die hard. Are you not worried that you're destroying the good the good stuff that's already there that's a good point i mean i've done side by sides it, maybe and the uh h202 typically does better in my side by sides than when i don't use it so i've just kind of stuck with it because it's cheap easy and uh it's really low concentration i, I wonder how much it's yeah really actually I saw, doing i saw a uh a presentation from uh you know dr james white the rise of Fiji guy and he, oh, yeah. he was saying it's very difficult to wash off all the microbes that are on a seed because it's, it's just so plent, you know, and they're in it too. So all those they were trying and to crannies. do experiments. Yeah, they're trying to do experiments with seeds that had bacteria and seeds that didn't. And it took a lot to get this, the bacteria off the seeds that didn't have, you know, they wanted clean. Like, I don't even yeah, think well, they're endophytes, they're not even on it. I mean, they'd be right. But I think he I means mean, the epiphytes. Yeah, right. yeah, all of it, any of them, right, to get them down, yeah. You know, Dr. Coco, I'm forgetting my, uh, like, uh, what, seed, hull, superstructure, morphology, I don't know how to say it, but, um, oh boy. okay. how do, do you know, do you, I know it's different for different kinds of plants, right, but. Um, There's a lot of similarity, actually, but. There is though, right? So, yeah. okay. So then like- um, Plant morphology, let me just say plant morphology, although it's really flower morphology is the most like confusing area of entire sort of animal plant morphology in the world, I think. Um, you know, seeds are another one, but there's there's a lot of, of overlap between different species, so. That's uh, true. So do you know, like, um, you know, there are, there are definitely pores in seeds, right? 
in the the testa in the seed coat? Uh, yeah, in the hull. Um, not really. No, I think it's pretty not really? much. It, it's pretty much a, a coat. Um, that it it softens under water, and and some testa are you know have to be physically crushed or have to go through like you know acids or other things or be burned or whatever. Some right, yeah. are are really difficult to to break the the latent dormancy um, or the dormant factors of the seeds um and then get wet but cannabis seeds just have to get wet and the the water imbibes the the tester the seed coat um and starts activating the the metabolic processes on the inside but i haven't i, I haven't come across anything i mean i might be wrong in terms of i think you're right though i think you're right but yeah, i think it's cause... just that soaking through of the test uh, and then it eventually ruptures because it, it softens I can say if yeah. I'm looking at macro photos of seeds up close that I don't visually see any pores. So it sounds like what Doc is saying yeah. would likely be correct. And uh, that the seed is like the shell is a, a solid seal, but something about, you know, water uh, being part of how it's natural process. It makes sense to me that that would be one of the things like some plants that be... have to get burnt or other things right. where they're at in nature. It makes sense that that would be the thing to activate it as well as like a certain temperature and uh, there's different kinds of dormancy in different seeds too some of them are like physical dormancies like they won't be able to open in, unless something happens to them um others are are more of a biological or a chemical dormant dormancy where the seed won't sort of awaken from its its um slumber until it heats up to a certain temperature for example that's usually not something related to a physical escape from the shell so there there's kind of the escape from the shell happens because of external factors like the seed getting wet and internal factors like the sprout starting to grow. The sprout starts to grow because it was awakened from dormancy, often by the wetness, but it, it can also be by these other factors like heat, you know, um, certain treatments. I feel like yeah, that's why I, scuffing and cracking. I think that I was, uh, I think I was maybe confusing like maybe there are some places where there's weaker points where when the hull uh softens like you were saying but i could be just totally thinking of something very specific i i don't remember but i really appreciate that point i brought it up just to say that um you know there's probably not movement at all um which i suspected there wasn't but i wanted to be sure by asking that poor question so they're really you know there is really quite a bit I think they also mentioned in the paper here that like usually, or maybe it was a different one I was looking at. Uh, but yeah, there's a, yes. not a whole lot of organisms, although they're listing I a bunch of that examples about here. Movement, Matthew. If you're talking yeah. about this is an endophyte inside the seed, like it's inside the seed. It's, it's inside. It, like, it usually gets the there. Or go in and out or something. But yeah, it was in there from, from Genesis. Well, somebody exactly. was asking. And it's very, uh, it's very controlled. Not a lot of organisms. I mean, certainly there are many now, but. It's actually a very small selection of microbes that can really make that uh, movement, as you were saying. JP from NB asks, uh, Xanthanol, is it possible that hydrogen peroxide can penetrate into the seeds and affect the endophytes inside? No, I don't think so. And that's, uh, I mean, I guess maybe if you like let it soften first, I don't know, hypothetically, but I don't think so. I think that also it's, I think peroxide would be pretty reactive. Maybe something well, in, that in was... my case, I'm not giving it near enough that amount of time. And um, 
I'm not scuffing pre-hydrogen peroxide, so I, you'd have to do something like that. And even then, I think it would probably not be effective from I what Ty was saying. So. The people that tried to do it in studies and measured it, it seems like they had a pretty damn hard time to lower the amount of endophytes or epiphytes, whatever it was. It's, it's just difficult to uh, really sterilize the seed at, at all in the first place. So, um, But I do think that scuffing sort of makes like an artificial pore, so to speak. So if your seeds aren't taking on the water well and starting to germinate that or a crack to allow it to get a little bit of a water and oxygen inside um, can be beneficial. So it's uh, interesting how we can manipulate the biology to sort of work with us if it's not quite going. Yeah, definitely. Um, this table that we, this figure that we've been at for a little while, um, it kind of nicely shows the different hemp cultivars and uh, marijuana cultivars. Um, on the left, it shows the bacterial species they found as endophytes. And in the grid, we have it color-coded. It's either red, blue, or yellow. Blue, um, I guess, is showing that they had the phosphate solubilization capability. Red shows that they had this uh, indolacetic acid secretion. So that's a phytohormone. I think it's an auxin, right? And uh, yellow showed pectinase activity, which is the ability to break down pectin, which... Um, I often associate with pathogenesis because a lot of microbes that are good at breaking down plant cells have this capability in some way, shape, or form, but the good guys have it too, uh, ironically, to have for the same ability so they can integrate or uh, do some other stuff. So, so you can see here that uh, that's the spread. A lot of phosphate sol solubilization with the mobilis, of course. Yeah, um, Matthew. Like, let's take that mobilis as an example. You see how it has yellow and blue on the first sample. And then on the fourth sample, it has the red and the blue. So in different cultivars, it's having different action. Is that what that's pretty much saying? Oh, I think that it's saying, that might be the case, actually. The, the this here, summary of, an, of in vitro phenotyping assays, I actually don't remember. Um, the answer to this, the cannabis endophytes were assayed for the potential solubilized mineral phosphates, green IAA, hydrolyzed pectin. Blue squares indicate phos... Okay, uh, you know, I don't know. I actually it don't know the answer be, to that. Yeah, it must be, right? I, it must be. Yeah, that's, my that's my inference, yeah. So at least in those on those particular plants, that particular bacteria, whatever it is, is actually doing phosphate solubilization and showing pectinase activity. And then the fourth one over, that same bacteria thing is doing IAA uh, secretion and phosphate stability. Yeah, I feel like that must be what they're saying because they're not attaching that to like a different microbe. So is it, maybe it's a different strain or maybe it's a different context. I'm not sure. Ah, okay. It's yeah, a good question though. It's, no, but, but like you would, but my, yeah, but my inference would be that maybe it has the capability technically all the time, or maybe certain strains exist. I don't remember reading that in the paper, but right. yeah, actually, that's a good question. Um, if anyone else has a crack at that, or maybe somebody in chat, but uh, I, I just think know. it shows some question. of the interesting elements of nature and how given a certain context and availability, it'll act in different ways. And it's yeah, able to do right. uh, more than one thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would don't, it would be totally congruent with other research that we've often talked about regarding that. Um, but yeah, so this, this is kind of cool. Anyone else have any comments before I move on?
I'll just comment that Tao just, had a good eye and uh, thanks for calling us. <laughs> yeah, he does. I just had a yeah, general he... general thing that I'm seeing is I'm not seeing any trichoderma in any of these lists, and you'd think that would be all oh. over the place. Oh yeah, well, um, you know they uh, they're just talking about bacteria in this particular figure, but that's a good maybe point. it's one of the ones they Stand banned by. in Canada. Maybe that's why they can't send uh what's it called recharge or whatever up there. But Canada's really <laughs> particular about the types of microbes they have, right? That's they're very heavily heavily regulated. So maybe certain industries can't use trichoderma, and maybe because they're sourcing all the seed from Canada, that could just be one of the things. Because it's so commonplace down here. But I know that they're a lot more strict up there. We really need a can can grow or somebody else back to one translate these uh like we we called it Guelph or Guelph. It, it's actually Guelph, but uh, I was calling it Guelph for a while, the university and all these different Canadian cities. It's uh, always good to have somebody from that great country up north of us. Canadia. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. Uh, no, I was agreeing with you facetiously. Uh, let's see. Here. This, these paragraphs, we already kind of talked about this stuff. Uh, they did make this point, this interesting little point here, that, um, that uh, there was an isolate. Uh, that was obtained from the God's Bud accession that was identified as PM17 penicillium. This is a supplementary table, which I did not uh, prepare. So that was interesting because following a seedling surface sterilization, only a single accession of cannabis or flax, the control, produced culturable fungus on PDA with tetracycline. And that was this penicillium. So that's neat. Um, this paragraph... Hey, Matthew, are there any, anything for the growers to, to kind of take away from this article? Anything that, that we would be able to kind of change our practices or things to incorporate into our grows? I think so. I think a big one is something we already talked about, which is that you're going to, that perhaps, I mean, I think it's, I think it's very likely that uh, plants that you're growing have some of these organisms in them, some spread, perhaps, you know, perhaps it's similar to this, perhaps it's much more varied. Again, we're only looking at culturable ones. So I think it helps to just have that context in your head that, um, you know, because I think some people come at it from a very um, fully valid sterile approach. And then some people come about it from yeah. a very non-sterile approach and that's fine. I think I that's think that, helpful. And a lot yeah. of growers that I work with definitely think that they are not dealing with microorganisms at all because they're running yeah. sort of sterile res and they're feeding, you know, chelated nutrients. And um, I mean, I often get asked the question of like, you know, is there any role for microbes in this style of growing? I'm like, there's microbes there. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I mean, yeah, there's definitely microbes there. So that that's a, a cool sort of lesson to, to take away. Um, inside and outside, um, regardless of how you're growing. So um, I, I think it's still probably an open question as to what exactly we should do in all these different situations in order to to sort of care for those microbes. Um, yeah, I agree or, with that. Or and be like them or not, or other yeah. of those kinds of actions. But yeah, I think that that's cool. So all growers should learn that lesson for sure. That there's do you know when being focused too about what microbes you get, and uh, not assuming that even that you even inoculated something that it took, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that kind of thing too. Because like we see here, there's a battlefield already waging inside the germplasm of your 
cannabis seed. So like there can be funny things that happen. And people wonder like, oh, why did this seed not grow? Hey, maybe it could be this and you don't even know. I, but somebody's going to say something. I have a fun fact. Oh. I just, uh, to answer Spartan's question, um, why is there no trichoderma? Trichoderma is not approved until November 16, 2022 in Canada for use in cannabis or hemp. And this paper is from August, accepted August 11, 2022. So if there were trichoderma, it would have been in, uh, you know, against regulation and use. So it's interesting. That's so why. What do they, what do they do when outdoor growers have trichoderma from naturally occurring trichoderma all over the whole fucking country of Canada? What it, I don't know, but it's not mentioned in the paper at all because I searched it for trichoderma. I think, yeah, well, it might not be. Well, you know, that's well, not that, true because I know trichoderma can be an endophyte in a lot of cases. And there's different trichoderma. That's, I mean, like, caveat, right? Like, I mean, not caveat, but it goes without saying that trichoderma is a genus and there's like hundreds of different species. Um, but yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It could have been the well, medium. I don't what know. brings it up in my mind mostly is because I know that that in combo with the Bacillus subtilis, which is, has been on there and it showed that it's, they found it in a lot of associations with the seeds. Um, that if you combine that bacillus subtilis with trichoderma in the soil, it will um, help. It's not 100%, but I think it was in the high 80s, 80% resistance to um, PM, powdery mildew. So for outdoor growers, that's bacillus subtilis is pretty common and easy to find. So is trichoderma. So I was surprised to see um, one, but not the other. So I want to pose a question perhaps to the chat and also to the panel. I think it'll be a good question that we could uh, rally around, which is um, how valid, how valid do you think it would be for somebody to take a look at this graph um, of different cultivars in red and strains of, uh, you know, many of these are pathogenic genera of fungi and conclude, you know, I don't really want to buy uh, God's bud or, Grandi or BC Big Bud or Altair because, you know, this research report showed that there's some penicillium or some cladosporium or aspergillus or fusarium yeah. in those seeds. So how valid do you think that is? Um, to do? Well, I was going to go back to the Doc's question and say, as, when I make seeds, I want to push on as much beneficial bacteria and fungus, whatever I, I, I have in my, uh, you know, I have at the time because that can only help things, right? But oh yeah, also, but not you know, you look at these petri dishes, they're culturing it. It's not like right? It's more than Well, but just, it had to be there. Right. But it definitely right. came from it. If that's what you mean. Right. But oh, well, but yeah, like they're fast. not going to grow like this necessarily. Right. Yeah, like this Well, they is also a, said yeah, I think they sure, grew it in, sure. in in cocoa or peat or something like that in other point, conditions. Yeah. So yeah, this is a little exaggerated. This is gonna. They didn't mention. They just said the soilless media. It's usually gonna. That's a good point. Good point. Um, you know, and like also, but like also, and as they said in the paper, there are some of these bacteria that are that they um they heavily suppress uh some of these fungi. So like I feel like in that way, like there's no guarantee. But still, like, do you want to have? But what if you could have oh, just the good just, guys? Is this just scandalous? Are you saying like they shouldn't they shouldn't do this because it's like scandalous against the or slanderous against the the gods oh, no. or something that it has aspergillus? <laughs> I think he was ask, no, asking as like a like grower, a, how much do we consider and like yeah, how many of these other yeah. people have we bought from and not even known? Maybe kind of like in that direction. Yeah, yeah, like 
But like, could somebody like if somebody looked at this? I could see somebody. I could see somebody looking at this and saying, "Dang, well, I don't want to really buy Fin Thirty Four if it's going to have aspergillus in it, or I don't want to buy P, you know, uh, uh, VIR Five Seven Seven. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose, but I, I don't think that this report is sort of marketed to those people. I, I wouldn't put this probably well, no. up in your dispensary if you're, you know, along with the bud, like, you know, pictures of the Petri dishes. Yeah. But, um, just, you know, <laughs> yeah. just because their guy bud seed had that one, it doesn't mean the guy who grew it in Hawaii is going to have that. Absolutely. So, yeah. Right. Really no. And we don't know, Depends. we don't know the sample side, you know, like who knows? They had chain sure. of custody as we saw at the Oklahoma Cowboy Cup. Oh, you know, sure. Yeah. Something can go in <laughs> potentially uncontaminated and then uh, have well, a bad chain of custody and then come out contaminated. And well, you know how a lot numbers. of endophytes become endophytes? They started off as non-endophytes, not all of them, but a lot of them. They start off as, as something in the bulk soil that get attracted or otherwise make their way to the rhizosphere and the rhizoplane, and they become an endophyte, and then they get up in their seeds when they're developing. And well, so that's one way it happens. It, certainly, but I would so say not everyone's fairly rare, this. and not then they colonize those those microorganisms that that colonize there, then start to become vertically transmitted from mother to seed, probably. Yes. Um, and incorporated into the seed, all of the seeds 100%. of that mother. And then, you know, the female seeds that grow out already have it and, and they pass it on to all of the seeds that they produce. Um, so I think the de novo colonization is actually really rare. That, that's one of the comments at the beginning that we talked about in terms of the founder effect that, you know, it's rare to come across these opportunities to colonize a niche that hasn't already been colonized um, oh sure but i'm I, I am of course in that example presupposing that they established because otherwise right well they everything after that wouldn't have happened i think yeah, it's so i am presupposing that you're right but you're right it's not a vacuum and so and so that's probably one of the selection pressures for having those antifungal um you know bacteria right <laughs> because i think it, if, it keeps if something them from like this getting in easily if something thing. like this was occurring uh, in my experience at least and i haven't you know tested any of my stuff for these types of uh, infections later in the plant but i'm presuming that it's going to kill it from a seedling like the few times that i've seen my seedling have like a white fungal growth or something and then it got dampened off and died where the other eight were fine in the germination but those two maybe had some sort of endophyte because mm -hmm. i treated them all exactly the same they were all in the exact same environment but a few of them displayed issues and were immediately killed off not by me by what i feel like was their sort of a natural doing but it was like a few, maybe five out of 500 seeds that have grown have had this happen so we're talking like one percent and uh, it's definitely seeds, interesting to consider were any of these plants problematic because of these endophytes i thought this was just sort of a, a symbiotic relationship not necessarily you know beneficial well do you mean plant, symbiotic but... or okay just symbiotic yeah like mutualistic symbiotic. or parasitic well it's a good question and that's or the neutral other reason I, that's yeah. the reason why i posed this because like you know another point that i wanted to bring up at some point but i wanted to have a conversation first which is that like as i've said before there's fusarium species with strains that are beneficial or have been shown to be beneficial or not really parasitic because well 
I mean, because the context wasn't there perhaps, or because it just happened to be that way genetically. And so like, we shouldn't assume, you know, we shouldn't be like prejudiced. I I think we should assume that none of these were, unless the researchers have said like these plants couldn't grow because they were infected with aspergillus or something. There were a couple, there seemed like there were a couple, but yeah, it's absolutely correct. The inference here is these are just things that are along for the ride. And we found them and they're there, but plants are still growing. I mean, they may play a role or not yeah, in this, but it's not that this is some sort of contamination and, and therefore these seeds were not viable. Perhaps it triggers a SARS reaction in the plant and actually makes it more stronger against right. other pathogens that are yeah. Who knows? Maybe yeah, there's all sorts of microbes yeah. that are vertically transmitted that are beneficial that you are in symbiotic, mutualistic relationships with. Right. That, it, you know, and that may be this, or this may just be parasitism that's fairly innocuous. Um, yes. I, again, I didn't yeah. do my homework and I apologize. For no, that. but that's it's exactly interesting the point to I wanted to bring up. Yeah. I think that they weren't directly answering those questions, but for us to sort of think deeper into it, I, I love to yeah. ask those types of questions and uh, ponder because there's definitely going to be more answers coming out in the future. And this is just like, I, I consider cannabis still on the early, early days of research yeah. and sort of they're finding this foundational stuff so that they have a baseline. So they'll be able to say in 10 years, well, oh, this is actually, if somebody finds aspergillus on a seedling, they're not going to freak out. This has like been something that's been known for a decade or whatever. But um, these first times you see it or hear it, it might seem shocking or whatever but uh it seems like most of the time it's not killing the plant but on rare occasions uh certain things were able to yeah and i want to self-moderate here um where at the top of the hour we can go into the next paper i, I can blast through the, yeah i think so i, I agree but i want to blast through this part because since coco mentioned it just you know they did mention that um uh there was, seed, there was different seed-borne fungi belonging to genera of cannabis pathogens alternaria, and they have a strain here, PM35, aspergillus PM40, penicillin P52, PM52, and serum PM60 here. And um, I wanted to say that they found that there were bacteria and there were fungi that were able to resist, and certain, you should read the paper if you're interested to learn more, um, but basically some of them were able to resist these bacteria more than others. So that seems, I think that they also kind of imply that um, those fungi were more uh, antagonistic than perhaps we were giving, but like, that's the important thing to be knowledgeable. Really? That was the whole thing. Okay. Dang. Well, cool. All right. Well, let's go to the next one. I like that the other one is also uh, microbial related. Yeah. Right. I like that too. Um, so this is the one that I suggested. This is called microbial consortium inoculant and rock mineral fertilizer different differentially improved yield and nutrient uptake of industrial hemp varieties. This was published in Industrial Crops and Products uh, this year. So cool. And yeah, again, I'm going to be uh, not garrulous. Hopefully. Uh, so basically, we, the idea uh... here. Maybe share the link for anybody who wants it in the chat. I don't know if uh, maybe Tao or... Oh, I shared, I didn't share a link, but I did share uh, the titles earlier in the chat. But yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody should probably link it up there in the chat. I'll go and pin if I can find that message. 
So basically, they're comparing two different cultivars. Uh, one of them is called Morpeth, for some reason. The other one is called Han FNQ. And they have a control too. And so what they're looking at is they're looking at the experiment between the effects of a consortium of, my, of a microbial inoculum, which is MI, rock mineral fertilizer, which is MF, and a combination of the microbial inoculum and a mineral fertilizer, which is represented as MI plus MF in diagrams that we're going to be looking at and that kind of stuff. They're also looking at, and they're all looking at all kinds of different biometrics like uh, dry weight and um, root size width and root length and other other effects like this. And they found a bunch of fertilizers, Matthew. Uh, just, that's a, just that's a good question. Fertilizers. That's a good question. I'm actually forgetting off the top of my head, but I think I think they have a control. All right. But no, you're right. I don't, I don't remember. I think it is just rock mineral fertilizer. We can dig into the methods, though. Okay. Sorry. I'll let you keep setting it up. Oh, no. It's a good question, though. Um, I'm forgetting. I read through it. <laughs> they also look at, um, so they look at here, um, root dry weight, shoot length, leaf chlorophyll. They look at different elements, um, like zinc, for example, phosphorus, potassium, stuff like that. And they also look at different metrics at different days after sowing, which I thought was interesting. So we have like um, 30 days after uh, sowing and 70 days after sowing. And they make some interesting commentary about whether certain things kind of mattered or not uh, based on how much time was allowed for, which I thought was an interesting thing to bring up. So, okay. yeah. So they go here, let's see, or do we really want to go into this section here? They do talk about trichoderma, um, the consortium. They talk about, of course, how uh, some of these microbes are, they have certain effects that we're already familiar with as like, for example, plant growth, um, Promoters. promoting uh, rhizobacteria, talk about here. But let me get past that. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, I did. I highlighted this part because I thought it would be interesting for us to talk about. They say here that in the seed germination early seedling growth trials from a different paper by the same uh, author, uh, we assessed 14 uh, local and imported industrial hemp varieties in Western Australia. So this is where it's being done. We identified two contrasting varieties, dioecious Han FNQ and locally adapted monoecious Morpeth for seed germination percentage, early seedling growth, shoot length, shoot growth rate, and seedling vigor index, whatever that is, and root growth indices, like average root length and average coarse root length. So what do you think about that? They have a dioecious and a monoecious. And they identified hemp. one. Yes, and we identified one of them yeah. as locally adapted, which is the Morpeth. Yeah, I mean, it would just be, we stay so clear of these varieties in cannabis know, right? because we don't want seeds, but like there are some varieties that are just prone to be hermaphrodites, what we would call hermaphrodites, which are monoecious plants. Um, so every, every hermaphrodite that we grow is monoecious because it has both male and female flowers on it. 
So they're just talking about a, a local cultivar that like always harms. And for hemp, I'm, I'm not surprised about that at all. <laughs> so we have I think some you could select for that pretty easily. It's harder <laughs> to select for dioecious. But the plants yeah, consider dioecious if it tends to towards dioeciousness, even if it can sort of physically be monoecious, like you know, under stress or under other situations, that's still a, a dioecious plant. And what they're really saying here is this this thing just always produces both flowers. They uh, so the so there's a lot of diagrams, interesting ones here. I think the first one is like the most complete, or it's the last one. They say here that in the results section that hemp variety had a significant main effect. I think they mean here on root dry weight, shoot length, and leaf chlorophyll content. A spad reading, as I said earlier, at 30 days after sowing, with Han F and Q significantly higher than Morpeth, as they uh, say in Figure One. This figure. Uh, they also say that Morpeth treated with microbial inoculant had three to four fold higher shoot and root dry weight than Morpeth and Han FNQ in all other treatments. We can again go to the diagrams after going after that. So, so they identified that cultivar had a pretty massive um, role here, despite being treated you know, experimentally. The, the two cultivars just performed very differently. Well. Dirty the grower says the one yeah, is a exactly. Chinese cultivar of hemp, and they'll they can confirm that. I suspected that with a name like Han FNQ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you can get me the characters, that would be interesting to look at for whatever whatever FN and Q are supposed to be in. So I'm 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 curious about that. What we set out to to sort of ask about this article was how does you know, adding these microbial consortia along with mineral rock fertilizer um, affect the, the, the growth. Like within a cultivar, within a variety would be more interesting. I also think it's going to be a, a bit of a reach, but I, I assume that there's a positive correlation. Um, is that shown some, Matthew? Yeah, there were some. They did. They did make some uh, points, kind of related to that. Since you had mentioned that point, I was curious why you thought that they even did it this way. Kind of like as you said, I, I had a similar thought it, as I was uh, reading this paper. Yeah, they're trying to simulate conditions that actual farmers growing these crops are going to face. So I'm curious what the source of nitrogen is. Um, but okay. The, you know, in a lot of farming situations, you may have a farmer that's trying to grow a hemp crop and they're adding rock fertilizer. Um, and, you know, that may be a common thing to do to grow this hemp in this soil. I saw that they mentioned um, a sandy soil with, with low nutrient content. Um, so oh, they're yeah, adding yeah. rock fertilizer. Well, is this in Australia? If it's in Australia, yeah. then it's probably for uh, phosphorus. Um, so, you know, and then they're saying, well, will it help if we also add this consortium of microorganisms, um, of microbes, right? So is that going to help with, with nutrient uptake? Um you know, even though we're also adding the nutrients in this this rock form. 
So that's what I thought the original sort of research question was. Am I, is that right? I think it is, yeah. So I guess they're just looking at two different plants and seeing how they So they're looking at two different, yeah, they're going to test this on two different types of plants. They're going to get the monoecious one, it's a local plant, and they're going to get, I guess, the Han variety. Um, And on both of those, I assume that they're going to run one group with just rock fertilizer and one group with rock fertilizer plus the, the microbes. And then maybe other groups would get neither, or maybe one group would just get the microbes. Like that would be um, part of the experimental design. Yeah, they mentioned here that, um, so they say significant main effects of variety and treatment occurred for shoot nitrogen concentration. And um, wow, I can't believe I'm so out of focus Does it say uh, what the source here. of the nitrogen is? I'm sure that they do. Um, but I'm not sure what it is actually off the top of my head. I don't think it's ammonia, but it might be. It's interesting because uh, the YouTube video that I was referring to, they did a study where they did 50-50 and then 100% of one type of nitrogen and 100% of the other type of nitrogen. And in one of the settings, the plant just completely died. The 50-50, the plant lived. And like the 100% one, the plant thrived. So it definitely seems to prefer one of the types of nitrogen over the other one but having both is effective and altered ratios of both can be effective as well. Okay, here Here we we go with some of this. Here we have some diagrams, which is probably less bleak than all the words. Um, This is figure four. It says main effects of variety and treatment on uh, A and B are root length and C and D root diameter and E interaction effect of variety and treatment on root volume of industrial hemp at 30 days after sowing. So this is just yes. all about the roots. So it had an, right. an impact. What did the what did the colors mean? Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I need this one more time. Is there a key somewhere by the diagram or are those just the different in the conditions? In the caption, they're explaining what A, B, C, D, and E are. Yeah, I really don't like, uh, I'm used to a different kind of organization here where uh, you might have had the C, you might have had these metrics down here, but I guess I kind of see how they did that. No, actually. So in the hand, on the high end variety there, you know, root volume, that bottom chart. So the control had one, about one, it looks like. Um, just the microorganisms was the decrease in root volume. <laughs> just the, the rock fertilizer also was a decrease in root volume. But using both of them together seemed to lead to fairly significant increase in root volume for that cultivar. But when we look at the other cultivar, you know, the, the data is a little bit harder to interpret. However, using both still seems to be the the largest amount of root volume. I don't know if root volume is a very good way to measure overall crop, though. Does it measure anything other than root volume and maybe another set of tables? Perhaps in oh, hemp yeah. cultivation, that is a metric that is maybe, I, I don't grow. Well, you're kind of screwing with the diameter. Rates. 
you're, you're giving yeah. it rock fertilizer and then these microbes and then you're saying like look you've got more roots well maybe what you did sort of stimulated them to grow more roots because it was causing the roots to die faster and that <laughs> led the plant to like sort of grow more biomass of roots um that's yeah. not necessarily going to be a good thing and one sort of other indicators of plant health and vigor beyond the roots since we're so it's just association right yeah, yeah well we're 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 stimulating the roots in these different things in different ways um and so clearly they may respond to that but what is that doing to the rest of the plant because we're definitely not harvesting the roots from from industrial hemp we're harvesting the seeds or the fiber yeah i feel as though um I mean, for example, looking at this diagram here, uh, D and also B, yeah, you know, it's just, I guess, less so with B, more so with D. The the, the spread is pretty unimpressive, but uh, we can keep going to something a little bit more. I don't know. So I mean, yeah, oh. I'd want to get into that. It's it's not totally clear. It seems yeah, to it consistently isn't. be the best or near the best in all of the conditions, though. But so is the uh, control. Yeah. But the thing I is, mean, like Doc is saying, this is, could be an example of science sort of being set up to prove their own point. They think, oh, this and this together is better. And we're going to judge that by roots, because when we did this, we noticed it had a bunch of roots. So we're going to use that as our metric and then publish. We care about that metric. Yeah. But it's like, right. how does it? Well, I imagine there's other other correlate metrics. to growth. Did they do anything about above ground like biomass or just root biomass? Y yeah, they did. Um I think it's the more interesting part of the story. So like one thing we use hemp for is seed, right? And also when yeah. you're growing when you're growing plants, you also probably want them to be, you know, nutrient maximized or whatever, right? The so that the seedling grows very well. So here in 3.4, they mentioned that the variety and treatment has significant main effects on the seed macro, which they define here as phosphorus and potassium, and micronutrient. So that's iron. Uh, manganese, right? Oh, yeah. How am I messing this up? Yeah, and zinc manganese, concentrations. Zinc. Whereas the variety and treatment uh, interaction affected nitrogen concentration and all macro nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient iron, magnesium, zinc contents as table S6. On FNQ, has significantly higher phosphorus, iron, manganese, zinc concentrations than Morpeth. Whereas Morpeth had a higher potassium concentration than Han FNQ. Cool. Uh, in contrast, the control had significantly higher iron, manganese, and zinc concentrations than the other treatments, but similar to zinc concentration in the microbial and mineral fertilizer treatment. So, yeah, okay then. Oh, here's where it breaks down. I mean, yeah, that condition is getting smoked by whatever MI or M1 is. Yeah, and it's Morpeth. So interesting how Morpeth and Han F and Q are disparate in this in the microbial group. Root length is like triple, practically a little bit less than triple the next highest metric. Well. Do we get to That's a point that, like Doc was saying earlier, does it get to a point where it talks about the upper growth in the seed? Or have we already gotten there? Oh, um, yeah, actually it does. 
yeah, I do find they have it like, the... interesting and it is, I think, an important part of the plant if it's healthy and growing, uh, you know, root well, length. We want to see mass. the upper, we want to see the upper stuff for sure. Yeah, they had, um, they had a few metrics that they were looking at. This uh, leaf chlorophyll content isn't quite the same thing as like a biomass. They have a shoot length um, metric here, but I guess that's from a previous paper, actually. They're like comparing to, huh? I'm pretty sure they had this information, but no, I guess they don't have a diagram of this, huh? Well, my bad. I will say a small subset of people do grow or use the roots, but not primarily. It's more of a byproduct, and they use it for like salves and other things like that. Um, but like Doc and many others have mentioned, the purpose for uh, growing the hemp is either for the seed or for the uh, fiber. Uh, the stock and it is interesting that that thing that they chose to measure was um, uh, many people will say the bigger the roots the bigger the fruits right but it, it would be nice to also have measured the uh the fruits there in this occasion yeah i, I wouldn't uh, i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't marry the two i agree with that like i want to see that biomass data for sure <laughs> Yeah, no, if that's what you're you're setting out to to study, but I mean, they might. Like I said, I didn't I didn't read this. I hate to sort of like drag a, a paper that I haven't gotten into and really see what the authors are trying to say about it. But um, let me see if I can find that answer though. For um... it is interesting, and it, it, it's interesting that there it doesn't appear to be as strong of a relationship as I would have thought. Uh -huh. Here we go, nitrogen. NH4. Oh, wait. So, so they use a mix, is that? Yeah. So okay. that's just a, a mix of nutrients. Do they give this to all of the plants or including the- It's like the a prepackaged fertilizer. Yeah, it looks like they're even they even got the yeah the names here. Yep, yep. So was that also given to the control? It must have been. I mean, the controls it got must have been right? randomized, complete block design with six replications. And then the rock fertilizer was in addition to that sort of standard NPK fertilizer, whatever they were giving to begin with. In certain conditions, so they had the. Yeah. The control and this is Australian, right? This is Australia. So, I mean, if they're trying to replicate maybe, the scrub, yeah, well, there's just, I mean, I just I feel like fertilizers aren't the way to do that. Or potassium, but like <laughs> Australian soils are famously short of, it might be potassium. Um, I said phosphorus earlier. But like they have issues with that. If you ever get like a plant for that was from Australia, you can't give it too much. I guess it is K. Um, potassium because you'll like it, it's it, they're evolved to like use every little tiny bit that they can get because it's so scarce there um and i i think that that's probably contributing to some aspect of this research is like some of the challenges of growing crops in australia because of the local soils and you know i imagine that the rock fertilizer may be a supplement for that or I don't know. I'd want to get more into it. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up about the, the seeds or fiber, which is something we always got to take 
into consideration when we're looking at hemp studies is that's not what we're growing with with you know cannabis um or like medical hemp or whatever you want to say if we're growing flowers is a different part of the plant um yeah but i will say i will i will uh i'll make a caveat there that um i think that this kind of information is helpful you know perhaps from a cultivation perspective where we're maximizing certain seed traits that no i mean well yeah perhaps but i was going to say um you know maybe if you wanted to increase certain seed traits for you know, people are growing from seed, but yeah, or, you're, you're right. I think, you I think know, that growing, like not for the grower seed, growing seed, maybe growing for seed <laughs> is more similar to growing flower than growing for fiber. Like a breeder, for example, big giant yeah. stalks is a lot different than like, cause when you grow for seed, you're still getting a, a bud that is sexual maturity and right. you're producing lots of healthy, uh, full formed buds, but with hemp for like the, uh, fiber, the stalk, they grow right. it super tall, really, really narrow, like a planted really, uh, high density. So the disc grows yeah. super high and they yeah. pick off all the lower shoots so that they get these giant stalks. And, um, it's a different sort of goal. Like Doc is saying from the yeah. outside. Yeah. And even with seeds, Jack, I mean, I think Matthew's right. Some of the stuff, if you want to sort of step up your seed breeding game and there were ways to like sort of um i don't know fertilize seed bearing plants better i I could understand that but that is sort of its own issue anyways um and and may put the plant to sort of use things in a different way than it would if it was growing seedless flowers um nonetheless i think that this is interesting Uh, my my biggest regret here is that i didn't sort of study my didn't do my homework in advance you were right about i googled uh, what is Australian soil uh, low in? And it says it is known that Australian soils are low in phosphorus and phosphorus. soil pH. Ah, you had it right. Soil had it right pH levels. I doubted myself. Could change <laughs> in response to uh, small changes in the water balance. So it's notoriously difficult just for using uh, a lot of native Australian soil. So Doc, your gut was initially correct. We got to trust our gut sometimes. Yeah, sometimes there we you do. Go. But I think that that's probably. I mean, at, at least. It's something to consider with studies out of Australia if that's sort of part of the the issue. Um, but I, I think you're right that that was part of this, the context. I think yeah. the takeaway from this is that even if you're using rock fertilizer or other inorganic fertilizers, um, you still might benefit from um, you know microorganism, and you do definitely benefit from microorganisms. Whether or not adding microorganisms again, how to operationalize this might be difficult, but we still depend on microorganisms in the rhizosphere to help with uh, nutrient uptake. Regardless, I very like eloquently to, said, it could go a little synganic in my cocoa and throw some beneficial microbes in here and there, and I always felt like it uh, would provide some of that stuff that wasn't. You know, although a lot of it is chelated and immediately available, if I didn't have it perfectly dialed in, it would seemingly unlock some stuff and uh, make the plant a little bit happier for whatever the reason was. And not to say that it's easy to uh, get dialed in perfectly, but uh, a lot of people I've seen that implement that tend to be happy with the results. So it's um, one of the many options out there. And I, I think that as much as we might try to do a sterile type grow in cocoa, rock wool, whatever, there's going to be microbes involved in that's just nature. Yeah. Nature kind of finds a way. You should try to be sterile against the things that are going to cause problems, not necessarily sterile against all forms of life. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of bacteria that live inside of you <laughs> that you absolutely depend on. Um, a lot of you know, so 
we don't want to sterilize ourselves either. We don't want to fully sterilize our plants. Um, we do kind of want to run sometimes a sterile reservoir or something like that, though. Um, and I, I don't think those are necessarily impossible goals to reconcile. Well, when we were talking earlier about like some of the uh, scarier sounding ones, like aspergillus or whatever else um, that was in the plants that was found, it's like, I just wonder how many of the plants that I've been exposed to or grown myself had that kind of thing. And I just never knew. And I knew I learned stuff from like, you know, Matthew about the evolution of people and how like different viruses and things that we've, you know, been hit by over, you know, thousands of years go on to live with us. And that's part of how we evolved certain like traits and, and parts of our bodies and things that we all still live with today and benefit from despite at, you know, the outset sort of seeming like something that would uh, be kind of scarier worrisome but ultimately it was a benefit so it's important to look into the sort of reason why it's there and understanding more about what it might be doing or might not be doing and the concentrations and all that stuff so i'm glad that i learned a little bit more about what is uh within the plants that we're all growing and loving and uh gonna be more curious to see what role does it does it really play and uh is it going to be on every plant whether it's in canada or in jamaica or in morocco like uh, there's going to be so much more research coming out. Uh, the YouTube video that we were looking at was like an Israel study. And they were saying that they had some of the first legal research being done. And it is cool to see kind of where they're coming to. <laughs> I had to sort of laugh because half an hour in, one of the things they're like, oh, yeah, we noticed that the top buds are more potent than the middle and the bottom. And they're like, we tested them. And our tops were 12% THC. And our mids were like eight and our bottoms were six so they're like if you take a top bud it's going to be twice as potent as the bottom i'm like okay that's an important thing to know but you're growing 12 percent <laughs> buds so like you're definitely like way behind and they're like oh well we were doing this because there's no other research at the time and this was like you know less than a decade ago some of these papers that were coming out i was like i remember in the california legal market there's people growing 30 percenters back then and it's just uh interesting to see but even that those kind of conclusions require so much understanding of the experimental setup like how big was this plan how much light was it under like how deeply under were the unders and how many other unders were there and you know what was the canopy um size of the crop of the plant um what was the weight harvested off of the plant I think those two numbers are going to be, I need to know those. If you're going to tell me that your lowers are way inferior to your uppers, I want to know how big was that plant? How much light was it under? And what was the total weight that you pulled off of that uppers and lowers? Because I suspect that there was just like too many lowers and sort of all these other factors that could, could play into that. Right. From the, uh, Images that I saw in the presentation, and I kind of screenshotted one of them and sent it to the group. And uh, maybe I'll try and screen share this for the uh, Sheep Home Grow faithful out there. All right, we're going to do share screen, Instagram chats, boom. Okay, so this is uh, N Bernstein. I can't pronounce her first name properly. Okay. I don't want to butcher it. But this is one of the plants here. And... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's um looks like it's in a fairly small pot. I would guess maybe two feet tall at the most. And there's one apical bud with like three or four lower buds. And this was a plant pulled out of like a greenhouse full of uh, hundreds of plants, similar sized. And something on the right side, I can't really, um, even in the YouTube video, it's like you can only zoom in so much. But this plant looks a little bit bigger, but kind of a 
it's held up by bamboo stakes and uh looks a little bit right. kind of uh wildly grown but the majority of the plants that i saw and the rest of the research looked like this bud here on the left that was just in a small pot uh looks like a short veg quick flip uh just a bunch of plants and never got them really super huge okay do they say anything about the lighting i think it's greenhouse maybe artificially like assisted okay. but um i'm pretty sure that it was meeting a certain uh, lighting thing based off of whatever they're they might even give in different conditions but if it's greenhouse then the lighting is probably going to be inferior to most indoor grows i mean if you calculated the the quantum load in terms of like cumulative dli across the flowering period it's usually less it's just cheap um you know because it's greenhouse light but yeah that's gonna be an issue like if you're not providing enough light to your plants um then you're growing a lot of uh, butt off of them then i definitely think the uppers are going to be better than the lowers So you can see here's another example, sort of a bunch of small pots, very short plants, pretty much uh, single buds, just growing up relatively unmaintained. Uh, There's no real um, plant training or anything being done. It doesn't look like they're deleafing. It looks like they're probably just automated watering. Later on, Are there uh, side branches coming off of that. Or if not, they're trimming something. Maybe yeah, maybe they're just removing any of the uh, side branches. But um, somebody um, Wiener DWC sent me a chat and the chat has a bunch of uh timestamps and like later like at uh, 49 they were talking about like potentially um they were saying nutrients doesn't cause hermaphrodism in their experience but they were saying that like if your watering system like crapped out that ended up causing their plants to grow male oh, flowers yeah. like drought uh, stress basically or salinity stress essentially yeah yeah i'm just going to kind of jump through so we can get an idea of some more of their plants i think they even showed like uh environmental stress they're talking about heat and stuff there's a, another example of that plant here it says light temperature stress mineral nutrition uh yield quantity versus yield uh quality is sort of what this is talking about the uh, title of this video they it's both from say Cornell. quantity oh, okay yeah they do both say quantity <laughs> but uh the actual um title i was going to say getting down here and Bernstein, the power of nutrient management for optimizing cannabis yield, quantity, and quality. And uh, she ends up talking more about, um, she kind of makes the argument that if you want to yield like less, you can get higher quality, but at the same time, it's better. Yeah, she She's also saying like, if you yield more larger plants, ultimately you're going to get, even though it might be a lower percentage of cannabinoids per plant, if you're just getting so much more, it, it comes down to that uh, trade-off of is this per plant or like per what per square foot i think there's yeah it could be applied to anything one plant however many square feet but ultimately i would uh always advocate everybody tries to grow their best healthiest plants and they're saying in certain situations even if you don't um you're going to have your percentages start to go up um they measured cbd thc cbn cbg all this different stuff this is what i was talking about earlier the uh bottom center and top and their top bud a is uh 12 versus their middle are six percent and uh the other condition is even worse the top bud is six percent and four and two percent so it could be a thing with the strain there that they're growing as well but 
I'm going to keep on jumping through. I think it's interesting just to sort of and what, are those you. percentages. I can't see that very clearly, but is that 0 0.2 and, and 0 0.02 rather in 0 0.04? Or so on the left side, the decimal on the CBD. Oh, at CBD. Um, yeah, that's 0 0.00, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0 0.8, and 0 0.1. So it's 0.8. It's not 0 0.08. Okay. I couldn't see that. Uh, 0 0.08 is no, correct. Oh, it is. It's 0 0.08. 0 .08. Sorry, I made it bigger. So that's a tiny amount of CBD, too. Right, right. Tiny. Which is common like for like a THC variety. Is, is 0.1. It just shows me that I would guess that this is just a not so well grown THC variety. Um, I haven't actually figured out what uh, it says independent crop production 129, 1581. So. This is from 2019, people, <laughs> as a reference. I mean, it is four years ago, but I know uh, a lot more uh, information was out there than maybe they were made aware of. It wasn't one and, of the cookies crosses. It could have been, who knows? Uh, <laughs> even, you know, good stuff can be grown poorly enough, but they I, also... Okay. You're, you're, you're checking it up. I thought that they were good growers. I was checking it up to... I think it's a combination variety. of genetics <laughs> as well as uh, cultivation. Cause like looking at these plants, like you see this one on the far left uh, is clearly struggling. Root mass isn't very good. The leaves are kind of uh, crunching at the tips and curling over uh, the plants tiny. Uh, I think this might be at day 30, 80, 160, 240, 320. Wow. This is it. That's a 30 day old plant. Yeah. Yeah. That's the exactly doc. Okay. I do think that it's interesting if anybody wants to uh, listen through it. I don't want to obviously go through um, and listen to everything, but they look at different. The one thing I, I did appreciate about the paper, I thought that was done well, is at this point they look into each individual um, you know, NPK nutrient and look at how little you can get by with and how much uh, can be applied while uh, measuring certain things. So the different concentrations from like 15, 60, 100, 175, and 240. Uh, ppm i think this was just fairly well done these parts okay. of the research um which so is that so why the plant was so small on the right is they were sort of starving it of nutrients it could have been but i think to be honest i think that was actually one of the stages where they were just trying to grow it in their right. like field crop gradients in the medical cannabis so you see here this is like okay this gives us an image we've got lighting yeah, it's green but it's not high light. intensity lighting that's just like you're saying yeah to maybe keep the photo period until they're ready to flower them. And then I think it's probably pretty much just whatever light they're getting in wherever they're doing this research. I think, I believe it is actually in Israel. So um, I'm not sure what parallel they're on as far as like latitude or whatever, but um, I don't know. It could also just be, there's probably people in Israel that are killing it with their sun grown, but uh, maybe this group just doesn't have it as dialed in, but well, regardless, with, with a greenhouse situation, you're going to have light out or above 1,000 micromoles per square meter for a few hours a day on a good, sunny, bright day. Um, and during some part of that on a really bright, sunny day, it's going to be so high that the plant actually has to start turning away from it because it can't use it all. But that's only for a few hours. And then Light in the morning and light in the evening is is relatively low PPFD. So the plants aren't going to sort of be able to harvest as many photons over the 24 hours 
as they could in a grow tent. That's this is one of the big advantages of indoor growing is that we can provide like the full optimized level of light the entire photo period. Um, you just can't duplicate that in an outdoor in a greenhouse situation because you can try to supplement the lighting, but you have to use quite a bit of it during those shoulder seasons, the dawn and the dusk. I think this is a lot of their foundational research. I think they're one of the first people who got grants over there and they're trying to, it seems like when they went through online stuff, they couldn't really figure out what to trust because a lot of the stuff online, like many who have gone out there and tried to figure stuff out on their own on the internet, will find it's a crapshoot that yes. you ask 10 growers, you get 11 different opinions is a quote I saw the other day and I, I laughed at, which I, I think is funny and true. Um, but it is tough for a researcher who is in an area that for a long time didn't have any cultivation and strict regulation to go into a time where it's pretty much free to do whatever you want and uh, how to best, you know, take advantage of it. This is looking at nitrogen concentration, which is kind of cool. Uh, I think it's 30 part per million, 80, 160, 240, and 320. So the different PPM. Yeah. I think that they said 160 is their idea. Yeah. It looks a little bit, maybe a little light. I think 240 looks... Yeah, it's uh, interesting there. I'd say 160 is probably fine. I wonder what they, I mean, I'd have to rewatch to go under. Oh, okay. So highest concentration of secondary metabolites was when they kind of starved it, is what this was saying. But you can tell that is this clearly a, a much lower yielding bud than uh, 320, 240, and 160, just visually. I mean, the plant uh, size of the inflorescence. So it's um, sometimes I, I, I am weary of the conclusions that are drawn of early research because it, you can measure something and be like, wow, this is a really interesting finding and then lead people in the wrong direction. Like the drought stress thing. I always try and advocate that you shouldn't do it more than one time. And oftentimes people just do it once on accident throughout their flower. Maybe their watering system doesn't work or maybe they don't get to their plants in time. So they shouldn't ever intentionally try and drought stress if they haven't really dialed in their system already. But um, I, I think that this stuff can be really, really, really fun to look at. And uh, you can look at some really cool diagrams like the ones that are on the screen and try and draw some interesting conclusions. Here's the effect of K fertigation. And some of this stuff kind of uh, corresponded with uh, some things I think Spartan actually said on a podcast years ago that I heard he talked about. I can't remember if it was K or uh, P or something else, but one of them, even if you gave it a like not enough, um, it looked like it still was able to perform fairly well. And it might have been K. But uh, look, 15, obviously struggling. 60, it seems to do fine. 100 and 60, not too much difference. 175 and 240 both look kind of overfed to me. So I would guess they said 100 ppm is uh, yeah. where I think they're saying is the ideal. But I'll have Spartan jump in because he's been fairly quiet over there. And I, I remember that you, maybe you still remember the study that I'm referring to, but you mentioned that a long time ago that cannabis can kind of go without one and still perform pretty well. Uh, I would say phosphorus. I was saying that people put, too much weight into phosphorus usually in the flower cycle than what is really what I think needed in that if you were going to put any weight on anything I would actually put weight on K I'd put weight on potassium and flower over phosphorus in my situation and in most most cannabis fertigations and stuff that I see and, and like that's the way I usually go except cocoa yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, except Coco's Coco, got I'll, a lot of K. We can we often and and that's sort of the 
the issue when we use bloom boosters in cocoa, and I recently released a new version of my nutrient chart where I radically sort of uh, toned down the, the level of PK boost that I was recommending because it could, it leads to cocoa growers having like K-tox or symptoms of, of K-tox, too much potassium. Yeah, um, a lot. So I just want to throw like, that out. I, I I agree with you for the most part. So I just yeah. that about and I know I agree with you too. I wasn't really thinking about the, you know me, I'm usually thinking on the organic side of things with Pete, but yeah, for sure. And you can be organic that can get dangerous. Cocoa organic cocoa. I don't Co see that. Spartan cocoa has been. He, he does the cocoa organic or non-organic. I think I think there's other aspects to that, but yeah. I think typically people think of the fertigation and cocoa, but even Spartan himself has done cocoa loco, which is the kind of uh dry amendment version, which uh there's I think organic said there's well. organic ways to fertigate. Yeah, it's yeah. just a different process of how the nutrients broke down and taken yeah. up by the plant. Yeah, or whether you depend on them to break down what, what the sources of them are. Um but I, I look at I, this I, though, I 30 to 90 PPM. The point that we tried to raise anyways, but I didn't you know coca could certainly be run organically. So Spartan, yeah. was it P that you were saying you can get away with not boosting lower. too much and getting yeah. Yeah, using lower? Yeah. They said 30, and they're like, you really don't need to go any higher than 30. I remember them talking about this part. Uh, 90, I think it's just like, a, you know, to make sure or whatever, but any higher than that, and you're really kind of just using too much just to use too much um, from what they're expressing, at least. And looking at their different side-by-sides, it's always interesting. The uh, DQ I saw earlier is Dessert Queen, and RM is uh, something else. So there's some semi-modern strains, I so believe. So what was the ratio? It was basically, I thought, 240, 130 was what they're, they're saying for NPK? I think so. So we've got uh, oh, and, 30 and sorry, to 90 P for P. 30. Yeah. What and was that? 230? I think it was 100 for K. K was 100. K is 30 also, I think. 30 ppm for vegetative oh. stage though let's, let's go forward a little bit i think they might have gone to 100 yeah i was gonna 30, say 30 to 90 oh that's i went too far did you say dessert queen or desert queen desert queen i i, okay. I read it dessert queen but it, it is because right? <laughs> uh dessert has double s <laughs> yeah double although s. both are great names you only want one desert but you want two desserts <laughs> yeah <laughs> bill Burr says there's an extra s to make your ass fatter uh, Yo, yeah, <laughs> find the find the flowering of uh, P and K. That I want to know what that is because yeah, that's whack. If it's only we're looking at it, it's got to be different. That's vegetative growth. One hundred for K. Yeah, uh, for bad. reproductive. And there's a hundred for the K. For phosphorus, so I wonder what they had. That Nitrogen one. was one sixty. I'm just one sixty for him. Yeah, see, that doesn't even make sense to me. It seems from all low. the commercial available cannabis nutrients, it's like five well, eleven. Also, what ppm are they fucking using? That is throwing me off now because I just remembered that there's three different ppm scales. No, 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 no. Hold on, can I talk there's about still this ratio? There's yeah. not three different ppm scales. PPM is parts per million. When you measure electrical conductivity and you're trying to guess what the PPM is, there's three different ways to guess what the PPM is from measuring electrical conductivity. And there's different assumptions that they make in basically different parts of the world about how much calcium there's going to be in the water. Because the little sensors that we use all measure electrical conductivity and then they report to you a value in parts per million. What they're doing here is they're actually measuring 
the, the molecular weight to be 160 parts per million. Yeah, um, the and milligrams per liter. Yeah, and the the effect, interestingly, of like you know a hundred n, a hundred ppm of n on EC is going to be different than a hundred ppm of of calcium on EC. And the hundred ppm of calcium is going to have twice as big of an impact on the electrical conductivity as the n is. There's sort of a, a relationship between them, but this is the correct way to use ppm when you're actually measuring the molecular weights and referring to it as a you know parts per million for that specific element. I hate all forms of measuring electrical conductivity and then talking about parts per million. And I wish growers would stop doing that. Just, just if you're measuring electrical conductivity, we should just talk about electrical conductivity. It doesn't make sense to translate that to parts per million, because we don't know if it's N or K or calcium or magnesium or, or what is in that. And when we're talking about parts per million, we want to do it like this. We want to say, you know, you want 30 Super. to 90 parts yeah. per million of phosphorus. It, forget parts per million. It's an exact number. It's an actual number. Yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. Like, I'm so used to talking to growers that are measuring with an EC meter and then yes. having a, a Thing and transfer. then talking and then about parts them, per million. What and that's it, just the wrong way to use parts per million. It reminds right. me a lot of the of the like ambiguity of like of like watts and light, right? Oh, it's a three hundred watt light. That doesn't mean you don't, you don't know exactly what that means, right? It's like people will do it. It's not exactly the same thing, but I I share a similar um, distaste for a lot of people assume right. it's pulling three hundred when it might not actually be pulling three hundred. And well, they used to it. just lie. Yeah, they used to that's say true too. That's true too. I got a question when they when they're doing this. Before test. you ask, Sal, I just want to give uh, Spartan Grown the opportunity because I know we're about okay. at that time okay. to uh, he's going to go take care of the dogs and get ready for Michigan Bros Grow Show. So Spartan, any final thoughts and shout outs before you get running? Yeah, just I uh, just want to thank everybody on the panel and everybody who came out to watch the show and chat. Uh, chat was uh, had the whole kind of thing going on too, so it was good. And we had some good input from chat too. I thought today uh, on some of these, uh, especially this last one. Looks like a couple of these guys might have been some of the people that recommend watching that one. Uh, uh, we nerd and somebody else was saying that there's some errors in that, and that we have to watch the whole thing to to get the whole gist of it. Some of those slides they had switched. So that's interesting, but um, thanks for suggesting the video guys in chat. And um, I, I just want to encourage that to, if anybody sees something cool that you think we should talk about, let us know. I, I like that idea. I like the idea of having more eyes and ears out there to bring in more information to talk about. So I thought that was pretty exciting today. Um, but yeah, I'm getting ready to go up to the Michigan Rose Grow Show and uh, you can catch me there in about uh, a little less than 15 minutes. Um, and we run that show from nine to 11. Uh, other than that, we'll see you guys here next week and I uh, hope you all just keep growing. growing Peace out, Spartan. Lord. See you guys. Always a pleasure, Spartan. Thank you. All right. So they're doing the variable amounts of K, P and N. Right. But, uh, so they'll show K going, you know, from 80 parts million, whatever to 160. But what about the other two? Where are those? Like while they're, they're running those experiments, so 
the assumption, and they should talk about this in methods, is that you hold the other, everything else that you can hold constant, constant. So like once they determine that the, the right level of N is 160, then they would test the other, all the K concentrations with N held constant at 160. And with P, this is what they did. Right. Like this is exactly what they claim to do. So, so that's right. what they claim so to do. Yeah. If they're saying N is perfect at 160, uh, what what was P and K when they figured out N was perfect at 160? Because they used to the best P. agronomic you know, knowledge. You know what Joe. I'm saying, right, Doc? They're, yeah. They get it close from hemp. You got to chase your tail. Yeah, you got to find your yeah, tail somewhere no and just go from there. And no you may need to go back like and readjust your assumptions at the beginning when you do it that way. But yeah, you start you go, to learn. You they get pretty darn do, close, yeah. though, as you saw. She's going in a circle, more or less. I would imagine if I was. You sometimes this. have to just refine it and you realize, right. oh, N is really That's too high in all these. Let me retest yeah. now that I've realized N is too high. Let me go back and test the different concentrations of K at this new concentration of N. Right. And then, and the then you're like, okay, now I got K. Thing. Let me go back and make sure that the N is correct now. And the other one works, right? Yeah. yeah so you just go back and verify. But I need a scientist. I need a lab and, uh, uh, you know, some underlings, about 100 underlings. Yeah, it's, it's a good point, though, because in order to do this really carefully and really accurately, like you do have to be careful and you do have to run a lot of different experiments, right, with like just to test that this one little thing didn't change anything. Right. They threw a and crap ton a of money at this and they, they did a lot of testing. I will say I respect this portion of the research, even if they're not the best growers on the planet. Yeah, they did, you can see they put a lot of work into the magnesium concentration to the nitrogen concentration and they tried to the best of their abilities to dial it in as well as they can. And at least it gives them a, a baseline of a place right. to get their yeah. research to continue to move forward. And they'll make subtle tweaks and variations going forward, like nutrient companies, like our home growers out there, like yeah, other scientists who have Bugby to others who have labs here in the U.S. and Canada. Um, it's really I, I'm fascinated to see it because I, I do believe that this is kind of still on the earlier side for uh, them. And I think that this is one of the situations where the home growers and cultivators sometimes will be able to turn out, you know, maybe a better looking crop or a crop that tests with higher percentage in the desired uh, cannabinoids and terpenes and things like that. But soon enough, trust me, these scientists, they're very uh specific and they know the agronomics they'll start testing the how many inches per day or uh you know millimeters and they look at all the different number of uh leaf tips and they start calculating all this stuff and putting it in excel sheets and they can optimize and dial it in and uh, start to improve their systems over time so i'm definitely a, a believer that this is going to lead to positive like things for watching, all of us yeah that's why that's why we like watching these scientific studies and reading them and yeah. staying abreast because they, they figure out new shit all the time stuff's oh, like, coming i want to echo that too yeah like stuff's coming i i can see it sort of that there's going to be products coming from some of the exciting science that's come out over the last few years um, like this one has a 120 ppm range for example they're at least honest enough to say hey we found between 20 and 140 ppm was what they found to be optimal in their magnesium and that could be strain yeah. to strain that could be the concentration of you know whatever in, in this particular research was done but um, at least they're giving people a range and not just saying, hey, this is the number, follow it. This is obviously the best one. It's like uh, they're, they're showing what they think to be forming in their research. So uh, I got to take my hats off. to This them is really more, most of us don't mix elemental nutrients though. So 
that is information that nutrient companies need to be sort of aware of whether or not the the formulations that they're able to keep stable arrive within that optimal range or how close to the optimal range that, that they're able to sort of arrive with their different blends um but most of us that are mixing nutrients or they're providing nutrients aren't going to be mixing it on the elemental sort of quantity scale like this it's much more convenient not exactly. to when i first started the guy I was underneath who did rdwc he was buying the raw nutrients like n yeah, it's p possible. and k and he was dialing it in and uh we figured out really he was just over fertilizing and we started dialing it back everything he just had everything too high a little bit of everything too high and what was uh, the final conclusions on this study jack there's like this is a, a culmination of probably 500 different studies um but they're looking at the reproductive growth of the uh, bottom inflorescence and top inflorescence with those different ranges and concentration so thc you're seeing when it's basically under fertilized it's not able to perform gets to a certain level it's getting better gets to a certain level it hits kind of peak and then boom diminishing returns so i think they're going to say this is like your 35 uh, ppm or whatever um all of the cannabinoids seem to hit a peak and then drop after a certain point so but I mean, like up. overall in general, did they, did they come up with like a uh, NPK uh, number and micronutrient number that should be a goal? Well, those are the things that we're kind of coming to. And um, this is the other thing I was talking about earlier, the NO3 versus NH4. Okay. Yeah, this is a very, 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 um, I mean, it's an hour and a half youtube video that is just kind of glazing over a lot of research that they've done over the past several years and um she's discussing what they researched and what they found so i felt it was uh, interesting enough to sort of touch on that's why i kind of left it towards the end I, I wanted to see how far that second microbial article i was considering even not even bringing this up at all because uh, it's hard to do it justice i was thinking about playing some of the audio so that she could actually speak and we could play it out to the people but then it gets into uh sort of a fair use and all that stuff which i'm sure it would still fall under but i, I don't want to have this risk getting pulled down because we played some uh content or whatever um of somebody else without their permissions or anything like that so just looking through it and uh evaluating some of this public science that they shared uh was very interesting i'm going to click over to the chat just for a second because um shout out to Weiner dwc they gave a bunch of timestamps. so herm through nutrition 4927 uh metabolic shift and usage at 50.09. And anybody who's watching, uh, or if you're on the podcast, you can go through and just pause for a second if you want to look at any of the interesting points that we nerd DWC pulled up, mostly from 49 minutes in to an hour and a half in, talking about different grow-related things that would be found in the study that were actually after the points that I was kind of uh, highlighting earlier, which um, is interesting enough. But yeah, we went through the first, I kind of glanced through the first 40 minutes. Uh, so far, but we've only got five minutes left. Speaking of time with this show this evening. So as uh, interesting as this one may be, maybe we'll jump back to it in the future when we all familiarize ourselves a little bit more or get some more feedback on that one. But with that said, uh, there's four of us this evening. So uh, about roughly a minute a piece. I'll uh, pass it over first to Dr. MJ. Hey, it was in, an interesting conversation. Um, I'm again, sorry that I didn't do my homework and I'll try to do better next time. I promise. 
I, I just hadn't even checked the Instagram chat at all and saw that there was articles there pending for me to review. So, but anyways, it was a, an interesting chat and I like doing these little scientific sessions. Um, remind everybody about the upcoming spring autoflower challenge over at Cocoa for Cannabis. It's the Size Matters Autoflower Challenge this year, which basically we're just dividing people up into groups based on how big your grow is. But then the side challenge is going to be to grow the biggest auto or to grow the smallest auto. And we're going to have some cool prizes for that. So I think that's going to be fun just to see what some of these growers can do and set with the task of growing the biggest auto. Um, so come and join us for that. It starts on 420, um, com forward slash challenge. Um, and I hope you join me for the Ask Dr. Coco show every Monday night for my Patreon subscribers. So grow love, everyone. Definitely make sure to check all that out. And next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Yeah, this was a good analysis, although um, I look forward to some other ones where we can sort of dig in a little bit more uh, into the diagrams and that kind of stuff. I think it does make things a little bit easier, at least visually. So yeah, and good chat. I really appreciated getting those timestamps. Maybe we should put those in the the uh, description but if you're interested to learn more about pests and plant health and that kind of a thing you can reach out to me for professional inquiries at zenthanol.com you can uh, reach out to me on social media twitter and instagram is at sync angel and i have my zenthanol youtube channel where i'll be posting an ultimate recipe mite video um, so you guys should check it out and i also will be posting a um a workshop, two workshops, one in New York, one in San Diego uh, in June and uh, yeah, in May and June. So to check that out, check out growcast slash growcast.com slash classes for the workshops. Good stuff. And uh, last and certainly not least of the panelists with us this evening is the American one. Jack, thanks always for hosting and uh Shout out to everyone on the panel. It was really a good discussion. Thanks, Matthew, for uh, taking a little, the brunt of the load this week. That was awesome. And uh, thank you. Thanks, everyone in chat for hanging. Uh, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Akeens on the IG. Most of you know where to find me. If you go search for me on IG, if you put in the American one, hopefully a little guy with an American top hat pops up holding the earth. That would be me. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you next week and see you on a couple of chats during the week. And yeah, have a great one, everybody. Cheers, Tao. And I'll uh, definitely say check out amyaces.com if you're trying to get some of those seeds. And I also want to second uh, Matthew's statement earlier when he calls something ultimate. He doesn't use that term lightly. This uh, man puts a lot of research into his general projects. So when it's the ultimate, uh, you know, russet might. I'm looking very much forward to that because I know there's going to be lots of research, lots of information, and uh, probably more information than some of our minds might be able to handle in a single viewing. But uh, I'll rewatch those bookmark times and uh, you know figure out the best information because you put so much research into it, and uh, it's uh, always great stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I guess last myself, you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram, Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter, uh, 50strains.com. This week we'll be hosting the first drop of valve punch f3 seeds so if you're in the units and you would like to get some velvet punch f3 seeds they're regular male and female photo period but uh this will be the first time that they're being released to the public anywhere so that'll be uh 
interesting, but I've got some of them are, I'm going to keep on packing more and more of them and looking forward to getting those out to the people. Plenty of people have asked, so you'll be able to find them on 50strains.com and shout out to everybody who's uh, supported this show. Uh, you know, myself getting books, all the people on this panel through Patreons, uh, YouTube subscriptions, comments, likes, uh, feedback in the posts, things like that. Uh, research, Wiener DWC, going through, giving us all those interesting timestamps that I will copy and paste over into the description for people to go look deeper into the research that we covered in the second half of the show. But uh, I'm very thankful for everybody out there who listens and uh, supports us in so many different ways. Uh, so thank you all very, very much. We look forward to doing this every week. I really enjoy the uh, science episodes, even if uh, we don't go super, super deep into them. I think, you know, scratching some of those surfaces, making uh, people interested, they'll dive into them a little bit more. I'm going to go look a little bit more deeply into some of this stuff. And uh, it just continues to further our knowledge and uh, cannabis experience. So very thankful for everybody tonight, the panel, the chat, and all those who listen afterwards on the podcast. Thank you very much. Jack Greenstock signing out. Peace and love, y'all. Grow or love, everyone.